right, so I'm going to talk tonight as we're pursuing our way through um, Hebrews. I'm going to talk about this Jesus and Melchizedek connection. And I tell you, I, I studied a bunch about this. I've been reading a bunch of stuff about it. I really wanted to, to bring something worthwhile and revelatory. Uh, but the truth is, what we're really looking at here is the nature of the new covenant and why this is in here and why this argument is in here. And, and so that doesn't keep me, didn't keep me from, from finding something that I thought was funny. And so uh, I have a bunch of old uh, post-Nicene fathers, I think is what it is. Anyway, there's a, there's a, a, a book of a letters, letters from Jerome. Jerome's the guy that, the Latin guy that translated the, uh, the Vulgate. And right in the middle of it, letter number 73, it's a little short thing that he responded. Somebody, one of the other ch the church fathers, and I apologize for not remembering the name, because I just started laughing when I read it and I kind of lost track of the thing. They had uh, suggested that Melchizedek was a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And I had actually heard that in the course of my training. So a person one of his peers wrote to Jerome and said, what do you think about that proposition put forward by this person's name? And uh, I thought it was funny the way Jerome answered because I, I expected something different. He said, I think it's preposterous. It's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> Melchizedek was a real person. I go, oh, I thought it was funny. So we're not the first generation to have debates that sink to a slightly less esoteric level over stuff like that. So... Um, Anyway, let's walk through it. What time is it? All right, here goes. Genesis 14, 17 through 21. Uh, literally, there's just one verse that has his name in it, but it says, Then after his return from the defeat of Shedelaramor, Mur, and the kings who were with him. You guys know the story? These five kings allied and came and attacked Sodom, and they carried off a bunch of people and carried off some of Abraham's uh, servants and, and all this kind of stuff. So Abraham amassed his army and he went after him and he defeated him. Matter of fact, it's called the slaughter. Uh, and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him. King of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaven, that is the king's valley. So um, Abraham went and did the fighting for the other cities that were raided, Sodom being one of those. And, uh, and as the king of, of uh, Sodom came out there, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all the spoils. And then if you go on, the story gets a little chippier because... Um, Abraham said to, to the king of Sodom, I'm not taking a penny from you, you know, because you'll say Abraham made you rich, and that's not the truth. So it was a pretty interesting little story. But that's where Melchizedek, and this is where the interaction. So there's a couple things I want you to see here. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. And everything that I can understand, that the, the nation state of Salem functioned or became Jerusalem. And so this is a really cool deal that, that the, 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 the history before Jerusalem, Melchizedek, was there in authority. And it says here that he was a priest of God Most High. And then he blessed Abram and said, 
Blessed be Abram, and, and look at that phrase, of God most high. So now we're already leaning in to this special revelation of authority of Melchizedek about the nature of the relationship God wants to have with people. His blessing titled Abraham, Abram of God Most High. Pretty cool. So the, the thing that's beautiful to me about the New Covenant is that, that as we understand it, as we begin to live in it, we live in a kind of sonship and a kind of relationship that bestows an incredible amount of honor on us well beyond anything that can be by just the way we behave or the religious hoops we jump through. So I think it starts right here, and I think it's significant that he's here. And uh, he also called God the possessor of heaven and earth. And, and I, I was checking to make sure that that wasn't something that Melchizedek was appropriating to Abram, and I don't think it is. If it was, Abram didn't, didn't interpret it that way because a couple of verses later, he calls God the God Most High in his defense of that. So anyway, then there was the whole official aspect of this. And if you go deeper and we will in just a bit into this, this idea of paying tithes uh, laid uh, an establishment because the whole concept of the tithe was what the tribes of Israel that weren't the Levites paid to the Levites for, for serving and, and doing that there. So anyhow, now that's it in the Old Testament, just about. So there's a lot of talk and a lot of teaching and a lot of speculation about a dude that there really is just like three verses on. And here's the other one. Psalm 110, 4, it's a psalm of David. This is the psalm that has the, the, the more famous line in it, until I make your enemies a footstool. It's a messianic psalm. Most people consider it so, and that precedes it. And then it gets pretty nasty and ugly at the end because it talks about dead people everywhere and uh, all that kind of stuff. So we've got to figure that one out. But verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this psalm uh, is the only other mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And um, it has to do with this Messianic Psalm uh, 110 and where all this talk in Hebrews flows out of is this reference in Psalms. All right, now... This is Melchizedek in the New Testament, and it's all found in Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 6 and 10, 6, 20, 7, 1 through 10, 11, that neighborhood, 11, 15, and 17. So I've just got a couple here, and I want to go through each of them so you know the entire context of what we're talking about. Uh, 5, 6 says, just as he said in another passage, that other passage is Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 5.10 says something of the same thing. It's talking about Jesus here. And having been made perfect, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then 6.20 is where Jesus has entered as a forerunner. Now that's the thing I want to talk about for a second, the first kind of significant point. Because what Melchizedek, among other things probably, but what he serves at specifically in the, in the teaching that's going on in Hebrews that contains the revelation of the new covenant is that Melchizedek was a priest of God designated by God not through lineage and not as a result of the law. So he was, he was uh, a priest, and it, it goes on to say 
without lineage and without this and without all that, we'll look at that in a second. It doesn't, I don't think it means that literally he, he didn't, wasn't, wasn't born, you know, that he was eternal like the Godhead or something. But I'm okay if that's what it means, because I don't know. But what it does do is it breaks the authority of the priesthood away from the heritage of just one tribe because this preceded it. And then it goes on a little bit and it talks more about it. Now there's a reason that that's significant as we move through here, and it has partly to do with this. If you go back up here, uh, just a little bit back in 620, it talks about behind the veil. When we looked at 6 last week, the thing that I wanted to get across more than anything else is that the uh, relationship between Jesus, the likeness the, the, in, the same, uh, in the same order, that Jesus and Melchizedek was, created a situation that drew heaven and earth together more closely than the Levitical priesthood could do. And, that, and, and, and so it wasn't so much that we have to discard everything that we've learned or known or related to in the covenant of Moses and the, and the law and the Torah and that. It's that Melchizedek himself reaches back before that with the covenant that God established with him and ties us into that preceding all that and maybe including all of it. I mean, I know that there are people that talk about the fulfillment and inclusion. I don't, I don't totally know how to process that my own self because in 8.13 it talks about one passing away and so on. So we'll get to that when we get to it. But the other aspect of this, okay, so this is talking about stuff in heaven, Right? As a forerunner. What's a forerunner? So this is the first big point I want to make about why this is important. One that goes before us. That's literally what it means. All right. But the significance of that is think about this. Where did he go? He went to the tabernacle. We'll look at it in a bit. He went to the tabernacle, not set up by man, but literally made by God. And as a forerunner, he, Jesus, filled a role that could not be filled by the Levitical priesthood. Because even though the high priest once a year did go into the Holy of Holies and did uh, offer a sacrifice for his own and, and the sins committed against the people, and because the priests did function as intermediaries, you know, worship was going on, esteem was maintained, the culture, the, the, the nature, all that stuff was going on. But you can't call what they did being a forerunner. They were one in another succession. If there was a forerunner of the Levitical priesthood, it was Aaron. And then it was, it was at that time of who's on the Lord's side kind of thing that the priesthood came into being. But Jesus is a forerunner. In other words, he's one that's gone before. Before who? Before you. No priest has ever gone before you. They went in on behalf of you. Now, Jesus also has ministry that's on behalf of us. But he literally is in this tabernacle. No priest ever went to heaven for you. Jesus did. No priest was ever able to forerun that path. Jesus is. 
and we've just scratched the surface. We're going to have an ascension afterwards tonight. I was joking with some people about, and I'm not really joking, but, uh, you know, however confusing it is, my teaching about Melchizedek, maybe we'll get a chance to meet him in person tonight. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but, but think about I want you to understand. I want you to um, make a place in your heart and in your mind about the distinction of Jesus being a forerunner. A person who blazed a trail into a place that no one else could ever have led us to. That's one of the beauties of the New Covenant. His covenant. He's that covenant. It's not just a covenant on earth to make things like they are in heaven. It's not just a covenant to bring the kingdom from heaven to earth. He has, you know, you get into John 17, Father, return to me the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's one of the distinctions that is being made by the writer of Hebrews. So that, because think about it, he's writing to a whole bunch of people who had, it's not like us, they had a temple to look at. They had worship services going on. They had sacrifices going on, at least for the next dozen years or so. Maybe 30 years, 40 years when this was written. So um, it's not, it was not a small thing trying to get their attention to shift from that to a new revelation of where they were, not just where God was, where they were, okay? Uh, 7, 1 through 10 is the primary story about uh, in the New Testament about Abraham, uh, Abram and Melchizedek, and then there's three more mentions. So here's the points. Let me read this from a couple of translations. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the highest God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything, is interpreted firstly as king of righteousness, and yet also as king of Salem, which is to say king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, and being likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest in perpetuity. Later on, it says that because Jesus has uh, embraced this role of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he is able to save completely everyone who comes to him, everyone who believes in him. And the big point that we're going to run into as we get deeper into Hebrews in chapter 9 and 10 is that what the law couldn't do, this is, this is from Romans, but what the law couldn't do through sinful flesh, God did by sending his son. And that was to satisfy and deal with this issue of sin and stumbling once and for all. Even to the extent in chapter 9, it says that Jesus is coming again without reference to sin. So the way that a, Le a Levitical priest could be a part of the system, even the high priest, and and absolve or cleanse or forbear the sins of people, Jesus has gone well, well beyond that because he's a priest once forever. And this changes, to me, the significance of the idea of a forerunner because he's not going in and out, going in and out, going in and out. He has blazed a trail to a place that you and I have access to. And that is the delight of the Father, 
and when we when we see what is said at the at the because clause in in chapter eight about the new covenant, it's going to mean more because it says that all of these things I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, I'm going to write my law in your hearts, put them in your minds. Everyone's going to know me from the least to the greatest of these because your transgressions I have met with mercy, and your sins I remember no more. And then it goes on to expand why because Jesus dealt with those. Period. One time. And that's why it even gets kind of rough, aggressive when it says, you know, if you know this and you've been touched by this and you back away from that, there's no other place to go. This is what happened. This is what God did to resolve the sin issue. And he did. And so we're supposed to believe it. So who was this priest king Melchizedek? I don't know. You know, I'm not going to get Jerome on my bad side and Suggest it's the Holy Spirit. I, 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 I don't. I at one time was taught and kind of thought that it was a pre-incarnate version of Jesus, but I don't think so now, because I have a more, a broader, more expanded view of who who's in heaven, and so it doesn't surprise me that there are pe- people and priests and kings and and all this kind of stuff, and it it also is much easier for me to believe that that Melchizedek was in fact a person who was was anointed by God, appointed by God in the pre-patriarchal days, before the law, before all that stuff, to be a king in this place. And, uh, you know, one of the big teachings about it, and I think that there's a lot of Jewish teaching that goes to this effect, that he was Shem, Abraham's son. I don't know if you ever heard that, but a lot of people believe that. Uh, so I don't need to identify him as that. I just want to take, take at face value what is said of him and the way he was honored by Abraham and the way then he was brought into the discussion of redemption as a person that links you and me as sons of God in the new covenant back to the foundation that caused Israel to exist in the first place. So you don't lose anything that's included, but it precedes it. And that's where I think he is. So um, we'll see. Okay, next, 4 through 10. Let me read this a little bit. Now contemplate how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abram gave one-tenth of his spoils. And indeed, those of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to take by the law a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, even though they have come from the loins of Abraham. And yet he who does not trace his genealogy from them received a tenth of Abraham and blessed the one who had received the promise. And it is altogether incontrovertible that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And here, in the one instance, mortal men received a tenth, yet there, on the other hand, it is attested... Wait a minute, sorry. And here, in the one instance, mortal men received a tenth, yet there, in the other, or on the other hand, another translation said, talking about Jesus, and it is attested that he lives on. And even Levi, who received the tenth, has, so to speak, paid the tenth through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his forefather when Melchizedek met him. If then perfection had come through the Levitical priesthood, for thereupon the people had received the law, what need was there still for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and to be denominated not according to the order of Aaron? And this is the big point. The new covenant reached back to the foundation, literally, of Israel and made a room, a space, for Jesus to ultimately fulfill the high priest's role one time forever. 
He's still that. He's always going to be that. I mean, maybe when he takes all the kingdoms of the world and lays them at his father's feet, that title will go away. But there's no more high priests. There's no more need. He filled the whole package. He did it one time, and he did it for all. And how that works out, and how we get that out there, this is the establishment of God's solution to what happened at the fall. Pretty powerful. Um, For when the priesthood had been transposed, there is also a necessity about the transposition of law. For he concerning whom these things are said is part of another tribe, meaning Jesus is a part of Judah, uh, from which no one has served at the sacrificial altar. For it is quite clear that our Lord sprang from Judah, a tribe in regard to which Moses said nothing about priest. And this becomes all the more plentifully evident when another priest in the likeness of Melchizedek arrives, one who has become such not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So let me make a comment about that statement. And don't There's no reason to push that to a a disrespect or a negative. It just means that the priesthood that Jesus assumed in his incarnate form, that he carried with him into heaven, into the Trinity, that resolve of priesthood didn't come through the ordinances of men. It came through the declaration of God. Thou art a priest, and this is why that Psalms 110 passage and all these things, you're a priest forever. You're a priest forever. And it's based not on a law, but on an indestructible life. Now, I don't know how much Abram knew about the concept of an indestructible life when he met Melchizedek. But the people that were writing this saw firsthand the significance of an indestructible life in Jesus, because one day he was hanging on the cross and a few days later he was scaring the bejeebies out of him walking through the wall and saying hi. An indestructible life. And so much of the teaching in Scripture is about that. The corruptible puts on the incorruptible. Death has been swallowed up. Oh, sin, where is your sting? Grave, where is your... You know, all this kind of stuff. This is what that's about. It's about the fact that none of the things that isolated humanity, deceived humanity, lied to humanity, stole our identity, stole our destiny, none of it could survive its encounter with our high priest. That's why earlier we read, because we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens and been touched by the feelings of our infirmities, yet without sin, come boldly before the throne. Couldn't do it any other way. I mean, maybe God could have, but I can't think of another way. All right. Last one down here, 11 through 28. In the likeness of Melchizedek, that creates this perpetual nature. That means that it doesn't matter what anyone has done after the pattern of sin or rebellion. Those who know our high priest know that he has satisfied what is necessary to be satisfied for them. That leaves us with some interesting dilemmas because I still have absolute capacity in my heart to judge and to react negatively. Vicki told me a couple of stories that she ran across, one where 
uh, one of the activists was saying, we're just going to have to either figuratively or liber uh, literally burn the neighborhoods down. Well, in my gracious heart, first thing I thought about was uh, not good. <laughs> Let's put it that way, you know. And it involved a hammer, this kind. And 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 so I I, I got up the next morning, you know, and I just started talking to the Lord. And the truth is, for me, I don't know if this is true for you. He cannot explain it good enough for me to understand it and be okay with it. But what he can do is he can release into me just a taste of his love for people. And I don't need an answer anymore. I just sit there in a puddle. You know, Lord, thank you. I'm sorry. And he goes, just look to me. How do you see people, Father? Because every person, regardless of what you have to look through, and we're going to talk about this a little bit. Richard and I and Dave have been going through some of this stuff at breakfast. And I've got this big old gem that I got from Katie Scurgeon. And I'm looking for some poop-colored clay. And then we're going to figure out how much you have to put, how much clay you have to cover this diamond with before the diamond loses its value. And you can probably figure the answer already. And it really just depends on how much poop are you willing to go through to get to that value. And the answer to that is our perpetual high priest, Jesus, who did it. He hunted and he hunted until he found the worst that humankind could offer in the Kidron Valley. And when they even asked, when he said, who are you seeking? They said, well, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, well, I am. They all fell backwards and he had to help them up and put his hands out like this so he could be arrested. He found our worst. He got through it because he knew he knows what who we are. He knows who God made us to be. So, so here's the last one. This is uh, the beginning of Hebrews eight. Now, the main point in what has been said is this, and in a study as confusing for me as the one about Melchizedek. When I saw that, I go, "All right, I better pay attention to this because if this is the main point." then that's what I want us to get. And so the main point is, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Just an example of a better promise for you to think about is when a, when an Israelite came and brought a sacrifice or when, when, they, when they gathered and recognized the Day of Atonement going on and all this kind of stuff, the promise was, you're good for another year. The promise that can be made by this high priest is you're good. And that's a way oversimplification. But I'm liking simple on some of these things. So, it's bigger than we think. But you can't go wrong if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in it. There's a lot of stuff that's hard to explain. It's hard to justify. It's hard to understand. Especially when you see somebody who's just really hurting. But, you know, it only takes a second. So, for instance, 
a person who's in a position like that uh, activist was, and they're making a threat that causes me to, in righteous self-indignation, you know, talk about how tough I am. It just takes a little bit for God to say, do you know what happened to him when he was eight? <laughs> do you know what this person did or this person didn't do? And it, you know, how twisted can a life get? And how ugly can it look when you have layers and layers and layers of stuff over the top of it? And, you know, sometimes when I'm, when I indulge myself, I get to the point where I hear the Father saying, are you going to be offended if I can redeem that person? <laughs> are you going to be offended if I can redeem that person? And anybody that can say yes to that really should call for an appointment. Because <laughs> we don't want that. <clears throat> All right. Well, Father, uh, I still don't know who Melchizedek was. Except he was the king of Salem. He was the king of righteousness. He was the king of peace. And it's all wrapped up in Jesus. And so now the authorities over us are not trying to get us to do the right thing or walk the right way or avoid the, the bad stuff. The authority over us releases righteousness and peace in our lives. And I thank you for that. And that righteousness and peace was released in Jesus through him one time and the fruit of it the sacrifice of it was carried into a tabernacle that never needed to be struck and moved it is in the heavenlies erected by God and it's not temporary and so I thank you that after the order of Melchizedek the one who extended the cup and said this is the covenant of my blood is the one who shed that blood in the heavenly tabernacle once for all. Help us to settle our hearts about that and begin to embrace all the glory that there is in it. Because I know our, our forerunners are. I know the Israelites of old are. Paul says that all Israel will be saved. And he can say that with confidence because Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, shed his blood for all. So I thank you for that, God. I bless you for it, and I invite you to meet with us during our ascensions. For those of you that are headed home, I want you to ponder these things. I want you to think about them, and don't try to understand it too much. Just let Jesus be the magnificent high priest that he is. Amen. Amen. Yes. Absolutely, please. Forgot I had a mic. I just was rambling on. So I can't help when I hear the word priest. Um, going back to my Catholic upbringing. And, um, you know, it's always so striking when I hear enter the throne room of grace boldly and with confidence. Mm -hmm. Because I remember as a kid going to that confessional and it was dark and you kind of just uh, snuck up in there. And, and then I remember thinking about 
sin and then trying to minimize it and make it sound better Mm -hmm. or not identifying one I wasn't as ashamed of. (laughs) It's like, thank God we don't have to do that. We don't have to sneak around. We don't have to uh, minimize it. I mean, we can look straight at them and share the ugliest of the ugly. Mm -hmm. And um, I just thank God for the contrast that I know now that I didn't used to know. And share the ugliest of the ugly and watch his reaction. Yep, exactly. The sharing of the ugliest of the ugly, when you know you can see him and he can see you, is what delivers you from the shame. Because if he's not ashamed of you, it's hard to sustain being ashamed of yourself. Pretty cool. This is a. I was talking with somebody the other day, and I said, you, you know, this plan of redemption was built to work successfully with us. It's not something that was on the shelf, and now we're it's we're trying to adapt to it. God looked at the core of what our issues were, and said, "This will do for that. This will do for that." And He knew what He wanted in the beginning. He wanted sons. He wanted freedom. So this is what this is about. Pretty cool.